are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. We obviously talk a lot about traditional menopause and how it affects performance on this show. But there's a demographic that gets overlooked in many of these menopause conversations. Women who go through menopause early or prematurely because of medical conditions, especially cancer. Medical, especially surgical menopause, can be intense because in some cases you're basically shoved straight into it. Hell, depending upon your circumstances, you could go through menopause twice, maybe multiple times because of medical conditions. There have been long threads all about this on our Hit Play Not Pause social media channel, and I have fielded numerous requests to have a show dedicated to this topic. So I'm really pleased to have found this week's guest, Dr. Corinne Men. Dr. Men is a 19-year survivor of breast cancer, being diagnosed when she was just 28 and in the middle of her OBGYN residency. She went into temporary menopause during chemotherapy and then bounced back, had a baby, and after recovery, went through surgical menopause a few years later after having her ovaries removed. So she knows a bit about all of these circumstances. We dive into all of that and more this week, including how to manage medical and or surgical menopause, when you should get genetic testing for breast cancer, finding active supportive communities like the Young Survival Coalition, managing symptoms when you're at risk for breast cancer, and so much more. Speaking of breast cancer, you'll see that once again, this is a topic for which there is no cut and dried answer. If you've listened to oncologist Dr. Avram Blooming on Estrogen Matters, that show, you heard him push back on the notion that estrogen causes cancer, while also noting that we are still in the process of understanding breast cancer as a disease and all of its causes, as well as what the real and relative risks look like for any individual woman. Dr. Men presents her own point of view, also noting that, no surprise, it comes down to each individual woman and her specific circumstances and priorities. I'm not sure we'll ever have easy answers here, but I really love having these conversations that just continue to illuminate this topic. Dr. Men is currently a dedicated gynecologist. She decided to limit her practice to office-based gynecology without the obstetrics with a focus on wellness and preventative care. You can learn more about her and her practice at drmen.com. I'll put that in the show notes. Speaking of, before we get to the show, this is my little weekly reminder to come join us on our social media channels. We are at Feisty Menopause on Instagram and Facebook. We have a private hip play, not pause Facebook channel where we have more than 7,000 women now, and you can pretty much come in and join any conversation that is on your mind. And if you want to deep dive into all things active menopausal living, we've got the Feisty Menopause membership where you'll find in-depth materials. We have expert webinars and sessions and offer sponsor discounts. You can learn all about that at feistymenopause.com. You'll also learn about the summit coming up next month, one month away in Boulder, which you can attend live or take part in virtually. Check it out. 
And remember, I have an email. If you have ideas for guests or want to drop me a line, I'm at hitplaynotpause at livefeisty.com. As always, thank you, thank you, thank you for the reviews, for sharing this show, for being part of the conversation, for the hearts and the stars. The show is continuing to grow. I want to send this thing into the outer limits, and I really appreciate all of you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, enough of me. Let's have a quick word from our awesome sponsors and get on with the show. Women who ride bikes, and I am most certainly one of them, know that finding women's cycling clothing can be an exercise in frustration, right? And that's why I am so psyched that one of my favorite women-owned and operated clothing companies, Velarosa, has come on as a sponsor of Hit Play, Not Pause. Velarosa's kits feature bold, beautiful, colorful prints and patterns. And the collections, which I really love, are designed so you can mix and match the coordinating pieces to get more mileage out of your cycling wardrobe. Best of all, they fit like a dream. The chamois is super comfortable and perfectly placed. The yoga waistband hugs your midsection without digging in anywhere. And the leg bands are like 100% functional and flattering with no squeezy sausage leg effect that is a big nope for me. Whether you like to ride pavement, gravel, dirt, or your local trail system, Velarosa's got you covered beautifully. And now, thanks to their sponsorship, Hit Play, Not Pause listeners can get 15% off their first order at VelarosaCycling.com. Just enter the code HITPLAY, all caps, one word, at checkout. Again, that's VelarosaCycling.com, the code HITPLAY for 15% off. So go get some sweet Velarosa Cycling clothing today. Like many of you, I try to eat well, train well, take the supplements I need, and track my recovery, sleep, and progress. So imagine my surprise when I found out I had elevated blood sugar, high cortisol, out-of-whack lipids, and was borderline anemic. Yeah, all while I was racing well and feeling actually pretty great. Turns out, all of my training stress was taking a hidden toll. How did I find out? Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is a service that analyzes your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness trackers to provide you a personalized, science-based, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is simpler, cheaper, and more convenient than traditional blood tests, and their blood tests also include biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from traditional blood tests like ferritin and vitamin D. My favorite part? They don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. And I've taken those actions myself and have been improving those markers and ultimately my health. So for a limited time, my friends at Inside Tracker are offering my listeners 25% off their entire store. So go to insidetracker.com slash feistymenopause to take advantage of that offer. Again, it's insidetracker.com slash Feisty menopause, I can tell you, it works. Well, I am so happy to have you here. And I'm so glad that my friend Janine hooked us up because 
this whole idea of surgical menopause, medical menopause, early men- it comes up a lot. And it's, it's something that I actually don't know a whole lot about. It's not in my wheelhouse, so to speak. And I, you know, I kind of struggle to even have anything meaningful to say, unless I sit there and Google, and then I still don't really know, you know, cause it's not my experience. And it, it seems to be a whole other, uh, just a whole other thing on, on and of itself. So thank you. Thank you. And I think, um, you know, let's start with telling the audience a little bit about your own story. You know, how old you are now and, and your diagnosis was when you were 28. And we had talked a bit beforehand, but I actually don't know how you discovered your own cancer. Sure. So basically in 2001, I was 28 years old, um, married for just about a year. And in my um, second year of my OBGYN um, residency um, in New York City, and uh, I was, I had, you know, the end of September of 2001, I had felt a small lump um, in my right breast. It was very small, very mobile. Again, at that time I was actually, yeah, I was 28. And as a doctor, I had never really met anybody who was so young with breast cancer. And my colleagues, my fellow OBGYN doctor residents, I had them like feel the lump. They're like, Corinne, it's probably a fibroadenoma. Don't worry, just keep an eye on it. So I, you know, I, I did, I kept an eye on it for a cycle or two. And at the same time, um, my mom suddenly died of ovarian cancer. It's a whole nother long story, but it was unexpected. And obviously that sidetracked me and I was attending to, you know, dealing with that. And then, you know, right after, you know, her funeral in November of 2001, I said, you know what? I've had two menstrual cycles and I still feel this little lump. Let me get this checked out. Um, and you know, doctors make the worst patients. (laughs) So I would never recommend people just waiting when they feel something unusual, but I was too busy learning to be a doctor to go to the doctor. (laughs) So, um, I wound up having, you know, an ultrasound and a biopsy and right before, um, the holidays in, uh, 2001, I was diagnosed with uh, stage two, um, estrogen receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer. Um, and I throw those out because those all relate to some of the hormonal discussions we'll talk about. Um, and then I subsequently, you know, went through, um, you know, I had a mastectomy, uh, I had six months of chemotherapy, um, and then I went back for, um, mastectomy on the other side as a, as a preventative. And then I, um, you know, started hormone therapy. Uh, and then after the hormone therapy, uh, well, we'll get into that because my story goes on and on, but that was 20 years ago. And, um, so I'll be coming up on my 20 year anniversary, you know, this December. And, uh, I've kind of been through, all the ups and downs of um, kind of the menopausal side effects of breast cancer treatment. Um, You know, later in, um, you know, my survivorship years around age 34, I did have my ovaries removed and we can, we can dive into that a little bit more as well. And uh, so I experienced surgical menopause from that. And during my initial chemotherapy, I experienced, um, you know, uh, chemotherapy induced temporary menopause. So I've, you know, had personally both of those experiences. 
so you've had menopause, you had temporary menopause then, and then you, you pretty much got pushed into surgical menopause later. That's, that's what yeah. I'm So I've had the personal experience of basically going through, um, chemotherapy induced menopause, uh, with it, I think it started around the third cycle of my chemotherapy. Um, and that was quite abrupt because basically when you have chemotherapy, it's cytotoxic, it kills rapidly dividing cells, and it basically shuts down your ovaries. The younger you are, when you get chemotherapy, the more likely that your ovaries will recover and mine did. So I was 28, I had you know a decent chance that my, my ovaries would be able to wear the chemotherapy. And about nine months after my last chemotherapy dose, I did get my periods back again. And then um, at a later time, I decided to have both of my ovaries removed to prevent recurrence of my breast cancer and as well as to prevent ovarian cancer um, because I had subsequently found out that I carry the BRCA2 mutation. So I you know, chose to have those ovaries out. So then I, I got to experience menopause a second time. And I'd say this time it was even more abrupt and the symptoms were more severe. So yeah, so that's fun. <laughs> but you did have children. Yeah, so um, after I finished chemotherapy, I immediately went on tamoxifen, which is a common you know, medication that women with hormone receptor positive breast cancer take. And I stayed on the tamoxifen for about a year and a half. And then with the um, kind of blessing of my oncologist decided to take a break of the tamoxifen briefly so that I could, you know, try, you know, attempt pregnancy. And I was lucky enough, even after going through chemotherapy, I was able to get pregnant on my own and I uh, delivered a healthy baby girl. And as soon as I delivered her, I went right back on my tamoxifen um, and then stayed on tamoxifen and after a few years decided that we really wanted to grow our family and decided we didn't want to risk, you know, me going off my hormone therapy because, you know, and we can talk more about this, but hormone therapy is basically the best bang for your buck in terms of, you know, treating and preventing breast cancer recurrence. So it's so vital that women, you know, do the recommended hormone therapy, um, because it really is, you know, the most important kind of piece of the puzzle there when, you know, doing treatment. So we decided I didn't want to go off the therapy. So then we decided to adopt our second child. Um, and we adopt our daughter, Lucia, um, from Guatemala. And then within a few months of that being complete, you know, I knew that we weren't going to have any more biological children. And just, I decided to um, have a prophylactic bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy. So a BSO, um, basically both ovaries and fallopian tubes removed, um, purely preventative to, you know, uh, prevent breast cancer from coming back. Because when you remove your ovaries, you dramatically lower your circulating levels of estrogen. Um, and also to prevent um, ovarian cancer. So that's, you know, why I made that decision. And interestingly enough, at the time, I had not yet been identified as having a BRCA2 mutation. My initial BRCA testing um, had shown no mutation, but it never sat well with me. I always thought 
I was diagnosed at 28. My mom died only six weeks before I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And she was only 54. We had no other family history, but it kind of goes back to what I always tell my patients and remind myself that listen to the patient and trust their gut. And my gut always said, something's not right. Even though the doctors reassured me that I did not carry the BRCA gene. So fast forward to, um, you know, I think it was around 2012, 2013. And I did some research and realized, wow, genetic testing's come a long way. And I should probably ask for update testing. Um, and, you know, none of my providers, my oncologist, breast surgeon, no one ever recommended update testing, but it's a very important thing. Um, and sure enough, on this update testing, they looked at another part of the BRCA gene that is not typically, or, or before 2012 was not typically looked at. And sure enough, that's where my mutation, you know, was, um, you know, at that point I had already had my, my ovaries removed. So, and thank God I did because I kind of, I listened to what I thought was you know, going to be the right thing for me. So that's, that's one pearl of wisdom that I always pass down to patients is listen to your gut. If it's not right, if treatments aren't, you know, if you're having side effects or you're having issues or you know, your current, you know, management for whatever you're dealing with is not working, you need to, you know, speak up and, and listen, because patients do know what is going on with them. They just don't always know the words to describe it or the right diagnosis. So um, speaking up and getting a doctor to listen to you is really important. So for, for people who don't know, what is that gene? What are they looking for? And who should make that push to get that tested? So genetic testing has come a really long way. So the BRCA gene, BRCA1 and 2, it's probably the one gene associated with breast cancer and ovarian cancer risk that most of the general public knows, but it's really gone beyond that. Now there's a whole panel of other genes that we've identified. Um, check two, pulp two, there's a, there's a whole panel that we can do, but basically the BRCA gene in a normal, um, a normal BRCA gene codes for a protein that helps keep cells from going into unchecked growth, which could lead to cancer. If you have a mutation in one of those genes, then, you know, that management isn't working so well. So you can have, you know, you know, unchecked growth of um, breast cells, ovarian cancer cells leading to cancer. Um, so the indications for who should be, you know, screened is very broad. And frankly, every primary care doctor, every general OBGYN, every year at your annual visit should really be, you know, just reviewing your family history with you, um, not just on your first visit to them and then never look back at your family history again, because family history changes, you know, mm. um, you could, you know, present to your doctor and say, yeah, I've got no family history of breast or ovarian cancer. But then four years later, you know, you might have a cousin who died, you know, you know, was diagnosed with breast cancer, say at age 35, premenopausal, that's a red flag. Or you might, you know, find out that you've got, you know, a male relative with breast cancer or a female relative at an older age who had ovarian cancer. And so it's really important to update your doctor every year on that. And then 
our threshold for testing patients is basically if you are of are you if you are not of Ashkenazi Jewish descent then we just need really two red flags um, and that is you know some of the common red flags would be um, premenopausal breast cancer in a first degree relative um, or two breast cancers or ovarian cancers regardless of the age in your family um, you know male breast cancer if you are of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, then we really just need one red flag. So it's really a very broad, you know, uh, amount of the population who really would qualify for at least initial genetic counseling. So it's super important because when we're trying to manage women in menopause, um, it's really important for me to know what is their risk of breast cancer so that we can talk to them about you know, are you a candidate for hormone therapy or do we need to use a non-hormonal treatment for you? So, you know, not only is it, is it important in determining your cancer risk, but it's also really important determining how are we going to manage you for the rest of your life? You know? So I think that it's something that every, every woman should, you know, speak to their doctor about. And the unfortunate thing, and it's improved, I believe, you know, I've seen that there's a lot of, there, there's, not a lot of awareness in the medical community. It's grown, but still to this day, even at major cancer centers and at very, you know, well-established primary care, um, you know, medicine groups, I find there's a real lack of uh, emphasis on making sure patients are properly, you know, screened for their risks for you know, carrying, you know, a genetic mutation for breast and ovarian cancer. And a lot of women fall through the cracks. I have a series of questions based off of this. Sure. Um, you know, the first one, you know, you talked about, and, and I want to maybe talk about this one first, and then we'll go back to the difference between chemo and surgical menopause and how those things are treated. But just in people who have this family history, or maybe their own personal history with breast cancer, it's, there's been a lot of, oh, there's been a lot of conflicting conversation about hormones and their role, you know, and I just had these, the doctors of estrogen matters on the show. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this book, his wife and daughter, both breast cancer and ended up being on, you know, low doses of hormones for what were really debilitating symptoms that they had. So, you know, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that as a practitioner and as somebody who, you know, personally sees a whole lot of this, like what, how, what should women be thinking of? What conversations should they be having with their doctor? You know, how do they make so, these decisions? Yeah, it's so, so it's so important. And I think this is where communication and going to your physician, um, with some knowledge and, um, is, is so important because, like you said, you're confused. Most of the patients, you know, the general public is very confused and conflicted about hormones and risk, whether it be breast cancer risk or cardiac risk. And guess what? A lot of doctors are really confused. Um, a recent, I just looked this up, um, a recent study looked at um, newly graduating OBGYN residents. Okay. So OBGYNs are the people that we go to for help with menopause. And 60% of graduating OBGYN residents did not feel comfortable coming up with a plan for a typical menopausal woman 
coming to the practice, you know, asking for hormone replacement therapy. And the reason for that is that an OBGYN residency is heavily divided between time in the OR doing surgical stuff and time on labor and delivery. Your real, real focus is on the obstetrical side of things. And then the GYN side of things is not focused on menopause management. That's changing. And I think programs will, you know, continue to evolve, but, you know, I think that there's a real problem with, um, you know, provider, um, you know, being competent and comfortable with menopause management. So that's just like an important thing for patients to understand when they are dealing with their doctor, right? You know, they may not have had a ton of training in this. And, you know, back in 2002, which I know, you know, the Women's Health Initiative, which looked at hormone replacement therapy and talked about risks of it, it really scared a whole generation of women and providers into, you know, prescribing, you know, hormone replacement therapy. Um, The thinking on hormone replacement therapy has dramatically evolved and it's extremely um, safe, important, and there's evidence-based regimens that can address, you know, menopausal symptoms. Um, But it's, we, we haven't caught up with the, that evidence-based um, medicine in terms of kind of the general public's and doctors' ideas about it, right? So I think the most important thing to realize is that um, both American College of OBGYN, the North American Menopause Society, and all other major women's health medical um, societies recommend and, you know, uh, support the use of hormone replacement therapy for women within the first 10 years of menopause or before the age of 60, if they have, you know, if they are symptomatic and it's affecting their quality of life. So those are the two big things. Are your menopause symptoms affecting the quality of your life? Um, and, you know, are you within that kind of 10 year time frame? If so, then you should have the discussion. The next step would be, okay, we know that you have an indication for it. The next step would be, okay, so do you have any contraindications for hormone replacement therapy? You know, the the absolute contraindications um, would be severe coronary artery disease, history of stroke, active liver disease, breast cancer in general is, you know, a history of breast cancer or a very high risk of getting breast cancer is a general contraindication. There's definitely a small segment of patients there who may be able to, you know, take hormone replacement therapy, but it really needs to be done on a very individualized case by case basis. Um, and then, you know, once we realize, okay, you don't have any contraindications, the next thing would be is to calculate your risks, your risk of, um, cardiovascular disease in general, and your risk of, um, breast cancers. Cause many patients will come to you and say, yeah, I don't have any heart disease or, you know, I've never had a stroke or I don't have active breast cancer, but they don't really know their risks. So it's recommended. And there's a bunch of very simple screening tools that doctors and patients themselves can do. And I can provide you, you know, with some of these links, if you want for your audience. Um, And you can just do a basic screening to just what is your risk of having, you know, a cardiovascular event in the next 10 years, you know, and this is an important thing that women around the time of menopause should do because, you know, we need to focus not just on breast cancer risk. We need to think about, you know, more women die of cardiovascular disease than they're going to of breast cancer. So once we calculate those risks and we see that these patient is appropriate 
candidate for hormone replacement therapy, then the absolute risks um, of taking hormone replacement therapy for, you know, the general idea is for five years or under, although that's not an absolute rule, but in general, five years or under, we use low dose, we use, you know, generally transdermal, sometimes oral preparations and other preparations. And the risks um, are minimal and the benefits far outweigh the risks in well-selected patients. So it really comes down to if you are symptomatic and you're selected as a patient where it's appropriate for, it can be a game changer and there shouldn't be a lot of fear about it. Um, and the main indication is hot flashes, but also mood disorder, sleep disorder, joints, aches and pains, and the hormone replacement therapy is really the gold standard in treating those. Women who have a higher risk of um, having, you know, uh, side effects, or they're at a higher risk of having breast or cardiovascular disease, those are the women who should then be offered non-hormonal treatment. Um, but really hormonal treatment is going to be the gold standard in, you know, treating your really severe hot flashes and other menopausal symptoms. Um, there are great non-hormonal options and I always offer both of those options, you know, to patients. And then we kind of decide what they're most comfortable with. Yeah. It's so interesting. Cause when you, when you dive into the, and thank you for that, that was a very good, that was a very thorough explanation. It's, it's interesting when you really dive into the literature, I think, part of the problem is that there's so many factors, right? Like how far are you into menopause? How, what form of hormone replacement are you taking? Even within like, not just how much estrogen and or progestin, but is it oral? Is it transdermal? Is it, you know, and, it, and I, I, the, the research is ongoing and, and, you know, still a little conflicting here and there. Right. I, and I think it's just, that was what creates a tricky picture. So working with someone who is well-versed individually is a really great idea. Yeah. And I just think it's really important to know, I think the main message that people should take away is do not be afraid of hormone replacement therapy in properly selected patients. It's safe. It's super effective. It can dramatically improve the quality of your life. And if you're not a candidate for hormones, we've got lots of other options. Are they as great as taking estrogen and progesterone? No, but can they really help? Yes. And, you know, I had, a, I, because of my personal experience, I had to self-educate and learn about those options because as a breast cancer survivor, I, I can't take hormone replacement therapy and my menopausal symptoms, both my temporary menopause from chemotherapy and then my surgical menopause, my symptoms were severe and greatly impacted the quality of my life. And, um, I've tried all kinds of different non-hormonal, you know, treatments and there are effective ones out there. So I think that's an important point for women to know too, because I've, what are some of those treatments? Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the most common non-hormonal treatment that is, you know, evidence-based because there's lots of non-hormonal options out there that really don't have a lot of evidence. And, you know, we can talk about that, but the number one is, um, the SSRIs. So, um, things like, um, Celexa, um, Effexor, you know, uh, Prozac has not been actually found to, you know, be as helpful. So the, 
the, the, the most commonly prescribed ones would be paroxetine, Celexa, and Effexor. So paroxetine is the only FDA approved um, SSRI for uh, relief of hot flashes. The problem with that is that women who are on tamoxifen cannot take that, you know, so then the, the next best options for women who um, have breast cancer or at high risk for breast cancer would be Effexor or Celexa. And those two medications have been found to be almost just as efficacious as having, you know, hormone replacement therapy. And there's reasons why we might choose one, you know, over the other. Um, as much as I find women have a lot of misconceptions and worries about taking hormone replacement therapy, I have to say, I, I, I have a lot of women, you know, feel the same way about the SSRIs. They think, oh, you're just going to throw a antidepressant at me. Um, that's not my problem. I have hot flashes. I can't sleep. I'm not depressed. This is, you know, and so I think, you know, they feel a little bit like, oh, I don't want to take this type of medication. And I think, again, it comes down to explaining to patients why they work. Same with hormone replacement therapy, explaining to them why it's safe and effective. So when I have a new patient come in, I try to like, just give them a little bit of a basic understanding of what is happening in your brain um, and in your body when you lose your estrogen. So when you don't have any more estrogen being produced, your, the receptors on your cells throughout your entire body, not just your breasts, not just your uterus, everywhere, including your brain are now starved of estrogen and progesterone. And we know that all these cells in your body have these receptors. So when your receptors in your brain aren't being stimulated with estrogen and progesterone, it changes the amounts of serotonin and other neurotransmitters. And we don't know exactly what causes hot flashes, but doctors suspect that it's probably has something to do with this change in neurotransmitters. It's really something coming centrally from your brain. And, you know, so we found that by kind of just boosting a little bit of that serotonin, you know, in that neurotransmitter, um, it will alleviate hot flashes. And when women understand, oh, okay, so this is a side effect of the hormones and we're using this medication for a specific reason. And this is, you know, proven to help. And the doses that we use the SSRIs in is often quite lower than what we would use for a major depressive disorder. Um, that being said, the, you know, fringe benefit of the SSRIs, not only do they help with hot flashes, but they do address some of the, you know, mood disorders that is very common, you know, with women at the menopausal transition, um, for a variety of factors. So, mm -hmm. um, but you know, SSRIs aren't for everyone and there's a whole, there's a, you know, there are other alternatives. Um, that's the most effective one though. And just to be clear, uh, because we didn't talk about it, uh, local estrogen, like a ring or, or cream, that is okay, no matter what, right? If we're talking about vaginal symptoms, it, yes. it's not so, systemic. Yeah, super important. Um, when, if your main problem is, um, you know, vaginal dryness, discomfort with intercourse, um, then local vaginal estrogen treatment is really the gold standard. So we always have to, you know, look at the big picture. And if a woman comes to me and says, you know what, my hot flashes really aren't so bad, or 
you know, they were bad a couple of years ago. I've gotten through them. But now this vaginal dryness is really, you know, bothering me. Um, educating patients and helping them understand that vaginal local estrogen is, has a much, you know, is, is much safer. It's, it's much easier to prescribe in terms of many more patients are candidates for it. Um, and it, it's unfortunate because I see not only with the public, but also with physicians that there's like a, a black and white approach. It's, oh, you've got a family history of breast cancer, no estrogen for you, <laughs> you know, or you are a breast cancer survivor, no estrogen for you. And that's just simply not the case. And in fact, again, ACOG and the North American Menopause Society, you know, both support the use of vaginal estrogen, you know, for women with vulvovaginal atrophy. Um, and it's super safe and it can, you know, really, really improve the quality of life. And there's so many great options. Now we've got vaginal creams, there's a vaginal ring, there are, you know, various little small ovules or um, like little tablets that can be put into the vagina that, um, you know, deliver the estrogen. And it's, um, you know, really great. I think the other thing is there are non-hormonal treatments for, um, you know, vaginal dryness with menopause. Um, my other favorites that I will offer women who you know, either don't want to take vaginal estrogen or want to start with something non-hormonal, which is fine. Hyaluronic acid. There's been a lot of, you know, um, buzz around hyaluronic acid, you know, over the past real decade. And I have found it to be a real, you know, great option for women who don't want to take hormone therapy. So there's various preparations of hyaluronic acid, you know, vaginal gel or cream that basically dramatically increase the hydration, um, you know, in the vagina and can really improve tissue quality, lubrication and comfort, you know, during intercourse. So, and that's over the counter. Yes, that's over the counter. You know, there's, um, you know, a number of brands out there. Um, one that I like is called Hilo GYN. Um, you can just, you know, order it online. It's, it's great. It's a vaginal gel. Um, and then there's, there's a number of other, you know, companies that make it. Um, so that's a great option. And then, you know, I also talk to patients um, with vaginal atrophy about, you know, other kind of lifestyle things that can, you know, help. I think it's very important that when women are having, you know, painful intercourse due to atrophy, that they first get treatment with either, you know, vaginal estrogen or with something like hyaluronic acid and use it for at least a couple of weeks before they try to attempt intercourse again, because you really want to kind of maximize the tissue quality so that you have a good experience you know, with intimacy, because what I find is a lot of sexual dysfunction in menopause comes from the physical, you know, side effect of it being painful and uncomfortable, but we know sexual desire is really linked <laughs> to how you feel in your brain. And so if you have an association that pain causes discomfort and it's not pleasurable, then your overall desire for it is going to go down. So we really want to optimize any sexual experience that you have so that you don't have that negative feedback loop. So, you know, I'll often tell patients, you know, let's, let's treat, you know, the tissue quality, let's make things better. 
then let's make sure that you use a good, you know, non-irritating vaginal lubricant um, because vaginal estrogen or hyaluronic acid does not replace needing a lubricant. And then those two things together, as well as working on really good communication with your partner so that you are approaching um, your intimacy to make sure that you are well lubricated and you will not um, have, um, you know, discomfort and tissue, you know, irritation, because then that's, that sets up that whole another cycle of pain, discomfort, and negative associations with sexual intercourse, which makes women not have a desire. Um, so I think that's really important looking at that kind of, you know, big picture. Um, and then I do want to add, I, you know, it's not FDA approved for, um, for treating this, although it is used, you know, quite often is, you know, laser treatment, um, for, uh, you know, vaginal atrophy, there's, you know, one called Mona Lisa touch, there's the Femi touch laser. So, you know, that's a whole nother discussion, but I have found it to be extremely effective for patients who can't do, um, hormonal therapy or they've failed on that and they want something different. And in a properly selected patient with a very good practitioner, and you want to do your research on that. Um, I think that's another option that patients should be aware of. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard from some in our audience and our membership who've had great success with the uh, Mona Lisa. I haven't heard other, other treatments, yeah. laser treatments, but I have heard that I've also, and I, I'm curious. I, one of the women I had on the show talked about trying um, vaginal estrogen and she described it as creating a super vagina and not in a good way. So I'm wondering like, is it, is there some, is that something that needs to be dialed in or do some women just respond to it differently? Yeah, it's interesting. I think that um, with anything hormonal in women, we have to understand all of us are, are unique and we all have, you know, estrogen receptors, you know, throughout our body. And you know, some of us have variations in those receptors and maybe some people are more sensitive to stimulation with estrogen. It's the same probably reason why some women go through menopause, you know, like a breeze and others really struggle. Um, it's why some women have terrible PMS and, you know, others don't. And so I think that yes, for some women, they may be very sensitive to the amount of estrogen. And the good news is that we have so many different options, products, and preparations right now out there um, for vaginal estrogen that, you know, we can really tailor it to a patient's needs. And a lot of times we'll start with kind of the standard dose, but we do have ways to, like you said, dial it back or dial it up for the women who need it. So, you know, just like when I'm talking to patients about starting a birth control pill, I always tell them like, listen, we will start this pill, but we've got a ton of choices. So, and sometimes it's a bit of trial and error. It's the same with hormone replacement therapy or, you know, vaginal, you know, estrogen therapy. Um, so it's not a one size fits all. <laughs> yep. Okay. So let's, let's backtrack a little bit and go back to the uh, chemo induced menopause and the medical menopause. Cause I want to make sure we cover that. Um, sure for people who are experiencing the, the chemo induced menopause, I, I, I think I heard you say like the earlier you experience that, like yourself, you know, the more likely it is to be a temporary situation. Perhaps the later you go into that, the more likely it is not maybe to be temporary. Um, 
what's the difference symptomology wise between that and surgical? You know, I've heard some women who have surgical menopause described as being like sort of pushed off a cliff, like right into menopause. Um, what, uh, what options exist for both of those scenarios and, and how can women navigate that? Yeah. Yeah. So chemotherapy induced menopause, um, can be pretty dramatic. It can be quite similar to surgical menopause. Again, it really depends on what chemotherapy agents are being used, the dose they're, and frequency they're being used at. And so, you know, there's a spectrum of what women will experience. Um, some it's more gradual, other it's more profound. Um, and then with surgical menopause, you know, you're, you're removing the main source of all hormones with chemotherapy induced menopause. There's probably a range of, um, the amount of, so to speak, shutdown of the ovaries. So in some women with chemotherapy induced menopause, you know, they may just have a drop in the amount of estrogen being produced. So they may stop getting their periods for a number of months, but their ovaries are still, you know, functional enough that they're producing low levels of estrogen, low levels of testosterone and progesterone with surgical menopause, you've removed all ovarian sources of hormones. Um, and understanding that surgical menopause is different than, you know, natural menopause, not only in that it's abrupt, but a normal, well, I shouldn't say normal, but a natural menopause, you know, um, the ovary will, you know, for years still secrete testosterone, low levels of estrone and very low levels of estradiol. It also secretes um, other androgens, DHEAS, androstenedione. So all of those low levels of hormones probably help women be able to kind of deal with the menopausal state. And it's probably why a lot of women are extremely symptomatic around the transition time. But after a year or two, their receptors and their body kind of gets used to this kind of new environment. And they're able to, you know, manage it very often with lifestyle or, you know, just, you know, some medication. Whereas with surgical menopause, there's none of that. You still have some sources in your body. Um, your adrenal glands, your fat cells can still make you know, small amounts of, you know, testosterone and other androgens. And very interestingly, your fat cells will take any source of testosterone and androgens and it, your fat cells have an enzyme will convert it to low levels of estrogen, right? So, you know, you do have still a little bit of hormones out there, but it's much lower. And then in breast cancer patients, who are menopausal and on aromatase inhibitors, basically those drugs work by, you know, you're already in menopause or maybe either naturally or because you've had your ovaries removed. And then the aromatase inhibitor basically prevents those fat cells um, and other cells from taking any little bit of androgens that you have out there in your body. And it prevents it from, you know, converting it to any estrogens. So I think, you know, the surgical menopause, particularly and surgical menopause plus being on an aromatase inhibitor, if you're a breast cancer patient, those are the two groups of patients that I think have the most dramatic and kind of off the cliff, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. symptoms. Um, how do we manage them? You asked, I think that, you know, the two groups are kind of unique, the chemotherapy induced menopausal patients, 
they, depending on their age, do have hope that, you know, they might regain some ovarian function. But many, many times if you're doing chemotherapy, there's a chance that you're going to wind up being on hormonal therapy anyways. And, you know, this is generally going to be a long-term issue for you at, you know, at at various points in your life. Um, For surgical menopause in particular, because it's predictable, we know you're going to go through menopause women really should be counseled and offered a plan before surgery. I can't tell you how many women I've seen who are like, yeah, I've got my ovaries taken out, like whatever, five months ago. And I'm totally suffering and I don't know what to do. They should never be in that position. We know that hormone replacement therapy works very well for women with surgical menopause And those women should be offered, you know, a plan to start their therapy as soon as their surgeon clears them for, you know, you know, starting medications. Um, And if they can't, they're not candidates for hormone replacement therapy, then those patients are the, are the patients who really should be offered, you know, an SSRI, you know, either before surgery or start it immediately after so that they don't get to the point where they're really suffering. And the same thing goes true with patients dealing with menopause and chemotherapy, Um, they really, that discussion should really happen before they go through menopause because women are left, you know, kind of just on their own and really suffering. And then it may take them two or three months to be able to bring it up with their doctor, you know, and it could be prevented. The other thing, um, also particularly with surgical menopause is, you know, even if the women aren't having hot flashes, you know, the vaginal, you know, you know, estrogen uh, component of it all should really be addressed early because women should never have to get to the point where the, you know, the tissue is, is dry and, you know, intercourse is painful. It's, it's really, it's really a shame when that happens. So again, this comes down to, you really have to self-educate and you really have to be a squeaky wheel with your, you know, your, your medical team. Yeah. There's a lot to parse out there. I mean, I sent you for for reference of of the discussions that happen in our group, you know, a whole thread, you know, a woman had said that she was 46 in perimenopause, having a lumpectomy radiation hormone. And she was concerned, you know, what it is like to be shoved into menopause. And she got a lot of answers from people, you know, like how tamoxifen, tamoxifen fits into this picture, hormones, like how do, how should a woman navigate this? Like, you know, I understand that you need to be a squeaky wheel and I understand that you need to educate, but educate yourself, but where do you begin? Well, (laughs) it's a great question. I think, you know, the first thing is you have to, you have to speak up and tell your physician what you're worried about or what your symptoms are, because I encounter so many women who I realize don't speak up and don't even bring it up with their doctor. One, because they may think, you know what, they're just, you know, like, oh God, I've, you know, they're just treating my breast cancer. I don't want to complain about this. They're, you know, helping save my life. So they, they kind of minimize their menopausal symptoms. So the first thing is, is to say the words, identify it. Um, The second thing is to go to very good sources of information because yes, support groups, you know, uh, social media, all of these things, it's great for awareness. Um, but there's a lot of misinformation out there and it's also extremely overwhelming. So I often tell patients or friends, 
listen, here's a couple of very good sources for menopause. My favorite one is the North American Menopause Society um, and also American College of OBGYN. And they've got very patient-friendly, um, evidence-based, up-to-date um, guidelines. So that's a great place to start. So, you know, you, you write down your symptoms, you speak your symptoms to your doctor, you do some basic education for yourself. Um, I think it's important um, to find a practitioner who is knowledgeable and understand. I, I always try to tell this to patients. You have to understand where your doctor is coming from and what their point of view is. So your oncologist's main point of view is to cure cancer, right? Mm -hmm. Your breast surgeon's main point of view is to cut out the lump, (laughs) you know, take care of the tumor, right? Your OBGYN, depending on who he or she is, main objective might be, you know, primary care. They may, it might be, you know, general, uh, it might be gynecologic surgery. They may be super focused on, you know, delivering babies. So you need to see like, well, what is this practice like and what is their priorities? And so if you find you're not getting answers, you really need to find, you know, the practice that is, you know, addressing that and also give these other doctors some grace, right? Because just as we are all really, you know, the the general public might be a bit confused with all this information out there, you know, doctors are too. There's a lot thrown at them. And I always say like, listen, your oncologist is great. Their expertise is not helping you have a good sex life though. (laughs) So (laughs) when you go to them and they say, oh, just use a little lubricant and that's not helping you. Don't take that as um, your only answer and just, you know, give up. Um, And they're a good doctor. Probably they just, it's not in their wheelhouse, you know? Um, So that's where you do have to be your own best advocate. Right. Right. Um, before we leave that, this general topic, one of the things that I noticed in that thread that did come up quite a bit was this, this connection between tamoxifen and joint pain, Mm -hmm. uh, is we have a very active audience, as you know, so that is that, that, that issue comes up the ladder pretty high as, as things that they would be concerned about. What are their options? Yes, it's a great question. I mean, not only tamoxifen, but also the aromatase inhibitors um, and also just menopause in general. Mm -hmm. So it's sometimes hard to figure out like, is it the tamoxifen? Is it the aromatase inhibitor or is it just menopause? Um, And I think that's an important point because joint pain, joint aches is a very common symptom of menopause. And so I just bring that up because some women you know, are reluctant to take their tamoxifen and it's very easy to blame all the symptoms on tamoxifen. And it's probably a lot more complicated than that, you know, um, in terms of how do we manage those patients? Well, luckily your audience I know is very active, healthy, you know, very interested in exercise and, you know, being fit. Um, and obviously that's your, your, your kind of your first line of defense, of course, but I see tons of super healthy, fit, super educated women about their health and they're still really suffering. Um, and that's when, you know, we, we need to obviously offer them more choices. Um, I think this idea of decreasing inflammation. So whether it be anti-inflammatory dietary choices, whether it's certain supplements that are well-selected and considered safe and have some evidence around them. Um, I'm sure you've talked about it with um, your audience before things like turmeric, 
mm-hmm. you know, and other supplements can be very, very helpful. Um, and for women who are on tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor, if their joint pain or other side effects are dramatically interfering with their quality of life, they need to speak up because there are sometimes alternatives in tweaks in treatment. I've seen patients have their tamoxifen dose lowered a little bit because their joint pain was just you know, not bearable. Okay. Or they, the doctors switched their hormonal regimen up, you know, somehow, and there are more and more new uh, hormonal treatment options for breast cancer survivors. Now, literally it's such a exploding area of growth and research that um, it's, we're probably going to get to the point where it's not a one size fits all, you know, kind of treatment plan. So I think, yeah, sometimes you have to think outside of the box and work with say your oncologist to really talk about all the options, you know, cause I've seen a lot of kind of creative ways to, you know, treat patients who are really not tolerating say their tamoxifen or rheumatase inhibitor. Well, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it is a tricky issue though. And there, there, I wish there was a magic bullet for, you know, these women, but you know, there's not, um, and I think just like with women in, you know, natural menopause without breast cancer, it really needs to be a multi-pronged approach. There's no one, you know, no one solution for this, you know? Right, right. You are, you are part of uh, the Young Survival Coalition. Are you, can can yeah. you talk a little bit about, you know, I know you, you did the Tour de Pink, which is a, which is a ride um, mm-hmm. that, that, for women diagnosed with breast cancer under 40 years of age. Um, do you ride regularly? And, and what, what are the benefits of, of being part of a coalition like that? Sure. Great. So yes, the Young Survival Coalition um, it was really my lifeline when I was first diagnosed. So it's the premier breast cancer organization that is dedicated specifically for women who are diagnosed under the age of 40. So when I was first diagnosed, that was, you know, the first place I went for um, help and support. And um, one of their you know, big, um, fundraisers and, you know, um, programs is the tour de pink, which I rode in twice at my 10 year anniversary and at my 15 year anniversary. And, um, it is, um, not only one of their most important sources of, of fundraising and I, you know, support the young survival coalition in so many ways because it is such a lifeline for, you know, women dealing with menopause, pre-menopause, you know, I'm sorry, early menopause, mm-hmm. um, you know, chemotherapy induced menopause and all the other collateral damage issues that happen to you when you're young with breast cancer. And it's unique and different than what happens to someone who say is diagnosed at 65 or 70. Um, so it's very close to my heart and I've worked with them on, you know, not just the tour de pink, but in lots of various other capacities. Um, I think, um, so in terms of how much I ride, well, I will admittedly tell you that I rode a lot in preparation for my 10 and 15 year anniversary rides. And then, um, my 10 year anniversary ride really was what introduced me to, you know, biking in general and cycling. 
I didn't own a bike. Um, I had never ridden, you know, very far. <laughs> um, and I just one day decided, hey, I'm going to do this. And the Young Survival Coalition um, gave me a bike. So they provided bikes for people who were breast cancer survivors. And a friend who is not a breast cancer survivor, you know, volunteered to do the ride with me. And um, it really opened up my eyes to this world of cycling. And it was super empowering. And it, um, the ride at the time was 200, um, miles over three days with options to do, you know, you know, less mileage if you chose to, and a ton of support. And it was just a bubble of three days of being surrounded by the most courageous, empowered, passionate, amazing women and men. Um, and yeah, it was amazing. And I rode all 200 miles. So I did a lot of preparation for that. Then, you know, life gets busy, kids, a career. And so um, I, myself and my husband then got, he, he wound up buying a bike and we, we kind of just, you know, started to just enjoy cycling for fun and, you know, to keep fit, but in a more casual way. Um, so I did that whole kind of prep again, <laughs> five years later and got a little bit more serious and, you know, did, did, did the bike ride again. And, and, and since then, I do it for fun and, you know, more casual, but I did, it really did open my eyes that when I was prepping for the Tour de Pinks, I felt um, at my best in terms of my menopausal symptoms, my sleep, my mood. Um, and I'd say I have my ups and downs, just like all my patients in terms of how much we commit to staying healthy and being fit and doing exercise. But I think that was a turning point in my life where I really started to make sure I incorporated, you know, physical activity more seriously into my life. Um, and these days I probably to stay fit, I'm really into yoga. Um, I love to hike, um, to ski, to do those kind of activities and physical fitness things that you can just incorporate into your lifestyle. I personally am not someone who is a super committed to you know, exercise, um, for exercise sake alone, I guess I'm more in the mindset of, I just try to incorporate it into my everyday life. So whether it's hiking or skiing with my kids on the weekends, you know, going for long walks, you know, that sort of thing, um, snowshoeing and <laughs> cross-country skiing, I try to do all of that, um, and just really incorporate it into my life. And I feel so much better when I do. And when I don't do it, because we all get into a slump, I really feel it. Um, and I try to use these examples to show my patients that I get where they're coming from. And I'm not like a hardcore workout queen. And just like them, I've got my ups and downs and I can tell them from experience. I can tell you, I feel worse with my hot flashes when I'm drinking too much wine or you know, <laughs> sleeping well and staying on my laptop too yeah. late. And, you know, you know, if gained, you know, five or 10 pounds and I really need to lose a little bit. I experienced that just like them. And, um, and I get it. It's not easy, but, uh, I think exercise and lifestyle is the cornerstone of anything else we talk about. So everything I talked about today can really go out the window if you're not addressing, you know, those two things, because everything else is just a bandaid. Um, this has to be the foundation being fit, being, you know, active in whatever works for you and your lifestyle. 
Excellent. It doesn't have to be, and it doesn't have to be extreme. I think people feel like, oh, oh our audience can, is a little extreme. So you don't yeah, have to. <laughs> Good. That's a, that's another that's another issue entirely. But but speaking, <laughs> but speaking of that, I actually one of the things that I really wanted to leave them with that I was hoping you mm-hmm. could you could talk to is when you have an audience that is fit and and sometimes beyond hyper focused on what they're eating to a to maybe a point that they don't even need to be they they wonder what they've done wrong when they get cancer. Right. There's this this idea that that, you know, because you hear like, oh, if you eat broccoli and if you're active and all this stuff. Right. And I just I would love to to hear you talk to them about like that. It just happens and that you don't need to blame yourself for your cancer. Absolutely. You know, I see this all the time. And frankly, not only some of you know my patients, but some of my closest friends and you know people in my life, this has happened to. Um, you know, actually, right now, I am helping a a friend of a friend who is exactly in in that kind of situation where her whole life she's been super health focused. She's got the perfect diet. She does everything right, and you know what? She's dealing with stage four breast cancer right now. It happens, and it's there's a lot of you know, women feel a lot of guilt. Um, they think, was it the birth control pill I used back in my twenties? No, it's not, you know, is it, you know, this or that. And, you know, the reality is, like you said, sometimes it just happens. And I think in the future, we'll probably be able to know why it happens to certain women. You know, we talked about genetic testing. The reality is, it's only a very small amount of, you know, very small percentage of women that we actually identify a specific gene mutation that caused their breast cancer or ovarian cancer or whatever. Um, but we know a large chunk of women with breast cancer, um, probably do have some gene mutation or hereditary issue going on there. We just haven't identified it yet. And, you know, and sometimes things just happen spontaneously, you know, our cells in our body are always fighting, you know, unchecked growth. And that's what our immune system's for. And there's lots of things in our body that kind of help prevent cancer. And sometimes things happen, you know, it, it, cancer grows. I think the most important takeaway is to listen to your body If something's not right, even if somebody writes you off, keep on pushing, keep on asking whether it's something in your breast and, you know, you're being concerned about breast cancer, whether it's something in menopause, whatever it is, you are your own best source. So speak up. And if you get diagnosed with breast cancer, even though you've done everything right, you have to let go of that guilt because it's not your fault. Um, and find comfort in the fact that women who are really fit and who, you know, have a healthy diet are going to ride their breast cancer treatment a lot easier. And they'll, they'll, they'll get to the other side, you know, with a lot more ease than someone who gets diagnosed. And it also has all these other kind of chronic health problems because they're not leading a healthy lifestyle. So you know, they're that much ahead of the curve. 
Um, the other thing I'll say for the super fit exercise queens out there. Okay. Um, I find sometimes in that population of women, because they are so focused on, you know, being healthy, they often, um, you know, do prefer not to use medications and they are looking for, you know, a natural approach to managing symptoms. And that's great. I totally support that. But I often find that group of patients can be very skeptical about some of the medications being offered to them to help with menopause symptoms, because you know what? you know, you can't, you know, maybe running a marathon will help you feel better with your menopause symptoms. But honestly, if you have severe symptoms, it's not enough, you know, and it's okay to use medication, you know, um, just like there's women on the opposite spectrum who don't do anything to be fit. They don't eat well, they don't exercise and all they want is medication, you know? So I find sometimes the two extremes <laughs> can be sometimes a bit challenging to deal with. And I always tell them like, listen, be open-minded on both sides, be open-minded to medication and be open-minded to, you know, lifestyle changes. Cause there is no one size. There's, there's no one magic bullet to help your symptoms. Um, there's a lot of skepticism about medications, I think these days for a variety of reasons. Um, so I think that's like an important thing to, you know, for women who are very, you know, lifestyle focused to think about. Well, this has been outstanding. And I really, really appreciate all your wisdom and all your time. Is there anything that you thought to leave our audience that we haven't discussed? Um, no, I think that, um, the most important thing is, is which I've said many times during this is to, you know, really listen to yourself and, um, you know, and trust your gut no matter what in you know, with your health. Um, and then the last thing, I'll just give one last shout out to the young survival coalition. The Tour de Pink. I'm not writing in it this year. Um, because I'm bringing my daughter to college tours, but um, the East Coast one is October 3rd in Point Pleasant and the West Coast one is October 23rd in Ventura, California. And there's 20, 36 and 62 mile routes. And it's um, just a single day ride this year due to some COVID issues, right? Um, but check it out at theyoungsurvival.org um, and we um, you know, hope to see some of you guys there. <laughs> Well, that's our show. Join me next week when I sit down with Lenita Anthony, a longtime veteran in clinical exercise physiology, program development, and fitness education. We talk nuts and bolts about exercise programming during the menopause transition, how to balance all the facets of your training, how to work intervals into your programming, and how to set some new and exciting goals. You won't want to miss that one. And until then, as always, stay feisty, my friends. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. 
Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. 